0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John 5. 1 John 5. We're going to finish up our series of lessons in 1 John. Lord willing, we will look at 2nd and 3rd John in future upcoming lessons and complete our (coughs) brief study into the the letters of John, the epistles of John, is what we have been studying in this this series. Um, We just have a few verses to cover, and we'll be um, wrapping up this letter tonight. But in these verses, as is with the remainder of God's Word, there's so much there, so much texture, so much richness. so much that calls into our minds other verses and other ideas that we find in Scripture. So um, I say all that to, to remind us that every word of God's word is so very important and worthy of our attention and worthy of our study. So even though we only have a few verses to um, cover, uh, I think you'll see with what richness these words are. And let's appreciate that about God's word. So tonight what we're going to look at is um, Lesson 11, what I've entitled, Sin and Death. Because in the closing remarks here, John um, reminds us of some pretty strong things, reminds us about sin and death. And so that's what we'll look at tonight in his closing remarks. Um, And let's begin by um, doing a little bit of reading in verses 16 and 17 of 1 John 5. And this is um, the section here where John talks about a sin that, that leads to death, a sin leading to death. So we'll, we'll discuss that in, in more detail here. So 1 John 5, beginning verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will will." Uh, will for him give life to those who committed sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. So, first two verses here, let's, let's look at these in a little bit more detail. First of all, let's consider this. Let's consider that John has written to Uh, us already, about having uh, compassion for our brethren. It's throughout this letter, and it will be throughout the next uh, two letters that he writes about the idea that we need to have compassion for our brethren. So here, um, John has already told us that indeed, when we see a brother in need, that we're to help that brother. Look back in chapter 3, in verse 17. He writes here, but whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And throughout chapter 3 and into chapter 4, there's talk about how important it is to love the brethren. In this particular verse, he's talking about not withholding when a brother has a certain need. He says, How can you have compassion if you're withholding the world's goods? So we come here to um, chapter 5, where, where we pick up. And it says there in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask of God. So there's, a, as we see starting off here, there's a, um, the idea of something that we need to do for a brother. So he tells us that we need to pray for a brother that's in sin. He says if he sees him, Committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God. So what's clearly going on here is he's, he's picking up on we need to have compassion for our brethren, as, we've already, as he's already written. And now he tells us if we, if we see a brother in sin that we need to pray for that brother. But there's some qualifications in this. Um, there's a qualification in the type of sin that he's alluding to here. So in the context here, John tells us about two kinds of sin, two types of sin. The first being that of sin leading to death. What is John talking about here when he talks about that there is a sin leading to death? Well, many will um, equate this and try to make the case for this, um, that this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the answer to that question is, is is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that John is talking about? I would submit to you that no, that's not what what John is talking about here. Hold your finger there, and and let's go over to Mark chapter (coughs) 3. I hope that this might clear up some thoughts about this sin leading to death. Um, although it's not quite in, in our purview here, but since it kind of comes up, I wanted to, to make mention of it. In, John, in Mark chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 20, says, And he came home, and the multitude gathered again, to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. Now, now pay attention to, to the charges, if you will, against Jesus that are being leveled here. Verse 22 And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So the charges that are being leveled against Jesus here is that he is working by the power of the devil, essentially. That he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And that's that's why he answers the question there. How can Satan cast out Satan? So here's the context of what's going on here. And here's the charges that are being leveled against Jesus. Verse 24 it says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. So he's making the point here that he can't be casting out Satan in the name of Satan because you're dividing the house. right? He said that just on, a, on an intellectual level, it doesn't make sense. Verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of sin, uh, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, we read that, and we probably read that in it before and heard that before, and also Matthew records this as well. But this idea of the unpardonable sin, or the eternal sin, and Jesus says that that is a sin. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So what is Jesus talking about here? Why is he saying that, that someone is guilty of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, they can never be forgiven that? Well, in the context what he's talking about here is those who are saying that Jesus Christ is doing the works by the power of Satan. Look at verse 30. Here is the, the, the crux of it. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So here's, Mark gives us a, a very quick insight and very quick uh, explanation of what's being gone. Remember I said to, to pay attention to the, to the charges that are being leveled against Jesus. They were saying he had a a demon, that he was casting out uh, demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus says that that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That you're saying that the works that I am doing, the works of my Father, Jesus would be saying, the works what I am doing, you're saying that that's by the power of Satan. And you see how Uh, serious such an accusation is and that's the reason that he says that that kind of blaspheme there is no forgiveness of that because what they're charging him with is they are saying that the son of God is doing things by the power of Satan so back in our context here when John is talking about a sin leading to death he's not referring to this because we'll make it more clear as we go along But Jesus here, and and Mark clears it up by telling us that they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. So the unpardonable sin is the one that those who were leveling against Jesus saying that he was doing the things that he was doing by the power of Satan. So back to our text over here in 1 John. Note verse 17, if you're back there in 1 John 5. John writes, All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. So, John is talking about when he makes a, makes a distinction here of a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. Note what he says there in verse 17. That all unrighteousness is sin. So there's not a, um, a division within that that's being talked about. There's not a division within the sin. The division comes as far as how people deal with that sin and that's what we'll talk about now remember James chapter 1 and verse 15 says when lust has conceived it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death you see the sin here is not really um, there's no division in the sin if you will what's, what's where the division is is how people deal with that sin so there's a sin leading to death and basically what that sin is, the sin that leads to death is the unrepented sin. That's what John is talking about here. And if we go over to 1 John uh, chapter 1 verse 9, he says there if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see here's where the difference is. There's a difference between unrepented sin And that is the sin that's leading to death. As long as that sin is unrepented, there's nothing that awaits the person except death. But that's not the kind of sin that John is talking about when he talks about praying for your brethren. So there's the other type. So he talks about a sin leading to death, and then there's a sin that's not leading to death. And the sin that's not leading to death is the repentant sin. And we can look at the same verse and understand what that means. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of sin that doesn't lead to death. That's the kind of sin that a Christian commits all the time, sadly. That's the kind of sin where we need to ask for forgiveness. And when we ask for that forgiveness, if we're a child of God, and we ask... For For forgiveness, John tells us that God is is faithful and just to forgive us. That's the kind of sin that doesn't lead to death. If there's sin in our life that's unrepented, that sin will lead to death. And so back to our text here, let's read it again and keep that in mind. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, that's a sin that, that that person can... Uh, has uh, repented of he shall ask God uh, for, for to give life to the to, let, me, let me read that again he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who committed sin not leading to death there is a sin leading to death I do not say that he should make a request for this so what does it mean it means that we don't need to be praying for our brethren our unrepentant brethren if, if I know that Jay, and I pick on Jay because I know this is not happening in his life, if, if Jay has got something in his life that he hasn't repented for, that's a, that's a sin that's leading to death. I'm not going to pray for God to forgive him for that sin. Why? Because Jay needs to pray that God forgive him of that sin. And when he has, he has repented of that sin. And now what, my prayer, what does my prayer then become? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who committed sin, not leading to death. So my prayer is for Jay that Jay has repented of that sin. God, please have mercy on him. And God will. Because of what John has said over there in 1 John 1 and verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us. That's the distinction that John is drawing here. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. It's how the person deals with that sin is what John is talking about here. He's talking about being faithful uh, in our service to God to ask for forgiveness. That's what he's talking about here. If we're not faithful, if we're not going to ask for forgiveness of sin, then that's a sin leading for death. I'm not going to pray for someone who is not repentant of their own sin. That's the sin that's leading to death. Moving on in the text, verses 18 through 21. This is the last few verses here in 1 John 5. Let's read those. It says, we know, verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard guard yourselves from idols. So in the last few verses here, John mentions things that make us uh, certain of our faith. That we can be certain of the faith that we have. He said this over and over again, and we've pointed out over and over again. He says, I'm writing to these, these things so that you may know. Not that you may guess, not that you may think so, but that you may know. And so in his cl- concluding remarks here, he makes some remarks here about the certainty of our faith. And he mentions here that there, basically there are three ways that we know of the certainty of our faith. And the first of those is in verse 18. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. So the first thing that we can know about the certainty of our faith, that no one born of God sins. And that's an interesting statement that he makes, isn't it? How can that be? Well, let's look at a few things. This is someone who is not continuing in, or not continuing to practice sin, is what he's talking about. Go back to, again, chapter 3. Here, the first part of verse 8, he says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So it's very important to understand that this is what he's talking about here the one who practices sin. Look down in verse 9. It says, No one who is born of God, remember that's exactly the same language that he's using over here in chapter 5, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So what we're talking about here is someone who is continuing in sin. That's the one that John is addressing. Remember, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to sin. But as Christians, we have the ability to ask God for forgiveness, and he will forgive us of those sins. But if we're continuing to um, practice sin then we're not truly born of God. Those two things can't be the same, can't be true at the same time. Someone, if he's continuing in sin, then he's not born of God. But the one born of God is not continuing to practice sin. That's how we can be sure of our faith. That's how we can be sure that as long as we are serving God and when we stumble, we ask him for forgiveness, that's the one who is born of God. And we can be certain in our faith because of that. And understand this. The opposite of that is true also. The one who is practicing righteousness is the one born of God. Over in James chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, to visit orphans uh, and to widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's what true religion is. James uh, defines it that way. This is what pure religion is. So we're either doing one or the other as a Christian. We're either continuing in sin, or we're practicing righteousness. And we should be looking to be doing that in, in that alone and practicing righteousness. The second thing that he mentions here, that how we can be certain of our faith, is that we are of God and not of the devil. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So you see the, the distinction that's drawn there. We are of God, the rest of the world is of the evil one. Two camps, we're in one or the other. We are of God and not of the devil. Again, back in chapter 3, look in verse 1. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. You see the distinction that's there again? The children of God and the world, one or the other. John says, what a great love of the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called His children. What a great blessing it is that we have to be able to be called the children of God. And so we are of God, not of the devil. We are born of God, we're practicing righteousness, and not continuing in sin. These are the things that help us to see that we are certain of our faith. And the last one here in, verses, in verse 20 is a list of things that we know. Let's read that again, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. We've looked at this verse in the past and looked to it as a summation of those things that we know. This is some things that we know because we are in Christ. The son of God has come. We'll look at these in a little bit more detail in just a moment. But the summation of those things goes along with what he's talking about here. This, is, this gives us certainty in our faith we, that, we are, um, that we are born of God and that we, are, that we don't sin. That we are of God and of the devil and not of the devil. And these are the things that we know. And all of this is because we are children of God. Last thing we'll look at here is what he says there at the end of verse 20. He says there that this is the true God and eternal life. So think about what's, what John is doing. He's drawing this letter to a close. He's wanting his readers to, this is the last thing that they'll remember about this letter. What does he want them to remember? He wants them to remember that this is the true God and eternal life. Verse 20, as we've, as we've said summarizes John's, basically his whole argument in this letter. It talks about the humanity and the deity of Christ when he says there, we know that the Son of God has come. Remember, look back in in chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld with our hands, handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us. Remember, part of the, writing, the reason that, that John is writing this is to refute the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were those who were, who were denying certain things about Jesus Christ. Either they were denying his humanity or they were denying his deity. John is writing, that's part of the reason why he's writing this. And that's why he keeps saying, you know. We know. And this is a major reason why he's writing this, because he's proclaiming the humanity and the deity of Christ. He's saying that Jesus um, is deity, but he had come to earth in the form of a man, and we are witnesses to that. And that's part of the gospel message, isn't it? And because of the, his manifestation and going to the cross and being put to death and then raised on the third day, we are witnesses of that. And that's, what, that's so very important uh, to the Christian and to his faith. He also talks about here the revelation of knowledge. He says, has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. Again, the Gnostics claim to have some kind of special revelation or special knowledge. That's where the word... Gnostic comes from. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. And so these Gnostics claim to have a special knowledge that only they had. John is saying, we know these things. These are the things that we're delivering to you, and now you know them. So there's a revelation of knowledge that has gone forth as part of the gospel message. And what it does is it affirms God and Jesus. The message that's going forth is the affirmation of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And because of that, there is a fellowship that we can have in both of them. God the Father and God the Son and with the Holy Spirit. There's that fellowship. So we have that because of the things that are here, the humanity of Christ, the the knowledge that has been given to you and the affirmation of who Jesus is and who God is, now the fellowship is available for those who believe in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So, there's something here at the very end, as John is writing this, and and to be honest, uh, the, verse 21 has kind of stuck out to me as, uh, it seems like an afterthought. It seems like a, a strange way to to, to to end this. He says, after all this, he says, Little children, guard yourself from idols. Seems like, I don't know, it just kind of seems strange to me. And then I got to thinking about, well, he's just told us about the true God and eternal life and the summation of all that he's writing. And there's something that threatens all of that. And that is indeed what he says here. It's idolatry. Remember, as he's going through and and writing this letter, he has these endearing uh, ways in which he addresses um, his audience, little children, beloved. Uh, He has this tender way of addressing his audience here, his readers. So at the very end, you see that again, little children. He's writing to them. He's an aged man at this point. So there's a lot of people younger than him. And he's writing, he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. You see, idolatry, and Paul writes in Colossians 3 and verse 5 that that equates to greed, it threatens all of this. In Ephesians 5 and verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, all this that John has been writing, all the, all the pleas for brotherly love and to love God and to um, make sure that you are following after Him and praying the way you ought to, and knowing all of these things, it's all threatened by idolatry. It's all threatened to go away for the one who gives in to idolatry. What is idolatry? Paul equates it with greed. But at it, it, the heart of it is selfishness. At the heart of it is one wanting to supplant um, God with anything else. Whether it be money, whether it be power, whether it be whatever. Whatever becomes, uh, comes between us and God, that becomes idolatry. Because we are putting that thing in a place of, uh, of honor and reverence where it doesn't belong. It comes between us and God. And that's what idols have always been. From antiquity, that's what idols have always been. People wanting to build, build things and fashion things and then fall down and worship those things. At the heart of that is selfishness. And so, that's why Paul equates it with greed. It's, it's the idea of, well, I'm not really going to go along with all this. I'm, I'm going to set up something over here that I can worship according to the way I want to do it. So all this argument that that John has put together here, and he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Don't let anything come in between you and God. Don't let anything supplant all that I've been talking to you about. So when I think about it in that context, it makes a little bit more sense to me why he would say that. Why he would beg his audience... In that endearing way, little children, guard yourself from idols. Because all this is threatened by idolatry, by greed. That closes out this letter. In our next uh, lessons upcoming, we will look at uh, the next two letters, which are very short. But as you can tell, lots to be seen and, and dug out from, from these words. I've really come to appreciate John's writing in this study. Um, not just these letters, of course, but his gospel. And you can see we've made lots of references to his gospel and see uh, his writing style is there as well. And I appreciate that about John. John, his gospel is quite different from the other three. The other three are more, we call them the synoptic gospels. They're all fairly much in accordance with. The way that they are written and the time frame, the timeline. And John writes from a big picture perspective. He's writing uh, this with the same really kind of idea that you may know. You may know that these things happen. I'm writing to you to show you that these things happened, and to tell you about Jesus Christ, so that you may know about him. And then, of course, we have the revelation that's given to John. And that's in a category all to itself. But I've really come to appreciate John's writing style and how he addresses his audience, and the things he has to say, and the life that he led that gave him the insight into his writings. So we'll continue on, uh, like I said, Lord willing, in the next upcoming lessons and look at the other two epistles of John. We offer an invitation at the conclusion of our time together, as we always do. What was the number? <coughs> 264 Whosoever will. We offer an invitation um, at the end of our time together. If you have needs of the congregation, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.